Good morning. My name is Dan Hugh Weller, and this morning we'll be reading two stories from the Gospel of Luke. The first is found in chapter 8, so if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles or iDevices or Windows phones or Android phones, or if you're really old school, um, an actual Bible or a scroll. Um, got a wide diversity of ages here, so if you get out your scroll, it'd be great. Uh, I will be, uh, also it'll be on the screens, and I'll be reading today from the New American Standard Version. Uh, again, this is Luke chapter 8, 22 through 25. I'll give you a few seconds to find it. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now a violent windstorm came down on the lake, and the boat started filling up with water, and they were in danger. They came and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are about to die. So he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They died down, and it was calm. Then he said to them, Where is your faith? But they were afraid and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Good morning, and welcome to all of you. I felt like I was five years old being read to by Dan. Did you all feel that? He is the father of little kids, and he teaches Sunday school, so there you go. Good training. Today, we're going to continue in our series called embodying the gospel, and it's really a series about how to be a healthy church community, how to be healthy individuals within this community. Uh, We've talked about how to live, how to give. We talked about discipleship. Last week, we talked about emotional triangulation or gossip. And today, uh, this is one of my favorite topics, uh, primarily because I struggle with it the most, is what we would call a non-anxious presence, or a nap. In that first story that Jesus, uh, Dan read for us about Jesus, there's this raging storm, and the disciples are panicking. And you remember, these disciples are not rookie sailors, right? They know these waters, they're fishermen, so they're not panicking for nothing. So this is legitimate panic, this is real, clear, and present danger. And all this while, Jesus is not Seemingly caring, but he's taking a nap. He's being a non-anxious presence. Isn't that neat how that works? Uh, And this is really about Jesus, who is the great non-anxious presence uh, over our world and in our lives. And it informs how we are to engage in other people's lives. Now, I gave a portion of of a talk that was related to this topic back in the first Sunday of October when it was my installation service. It was the very first sermon, official sermon that I preached here. But that sermon was only a few minutes long, and so I really uh, felt that there was more to be said. And so I want to try to finish that talk today. Uh, Four things we're going to cover. First, Jesus is present. Second, Jesus is a servant. Third, Jesus is 
loving. And fourth, Jesus is true. First, Jesus is present. We see in verse 22 to 25 that Jesus is taking a NAP. So Jesus is the great non-anxious presence. Now think about these three words together for me. Non, I guess that's just the prefix, non-anxious presence. So you are present, but somehow you are non-anxious in the midst of being present. Are you good with that? Are you, are you able to do that? Are you able to be present but be non-anxious? My story is that I, I am really, really good at being an anxious presence. That if I'm present, I tend to be anxious. If I'm engaged and attentive and very present, I'm also my anxious self. Right? Or I can be non-anxious, but that means I'm absent. Right? So I can be an anxious presence, or I can be a non-anxious absence. And then third, this is my favorite, I can be an anxious absence. <laughs> and this is how I operate, I think, about 90% of the time. Once in a blue moon. So if I have a 10-hour day for one hour, at the most, at my best, I can be a non-anxious presence. My presence is a gift to other people. They don't have to manage me and my presence, but they can enjoy me. And I can be an additive rather than a distraction or a detraction. So let me define what I think is a non-anxious presence. Okay? And I've, I've thought about each of these words very carefully. So a non-anxious presence is one who is lovingly engaged. So this person who is a non-anxious presence is actually loving. They're functioning out of love. They're not being anxious. They're not being fearful. They're not being worried. They're not being controlling. They're actually being loving. They understand the moment, and they're able to say, what is loving here in this moment? What is truly the loving thing to be or do? So they're loving, and they're not just loving from a distance. They don't just have good intentions or feelings in their heart, but they're actually engaged. Their hands are on the plow, right? Lovingly engaged without capitulating, and I use this word capitulating because it means to give in. It's used often in war times, right? It means to give up or to cave under. But I'm not going to do it. I'm lovingly engaged without capitulating to one's own or others' fears and anxieties. So let me read it through one more time. A non-anxious presence is one who is lovingly engaged without capitulating to one's own or others' fears and anxieties. Let me ask you a question. Are you able to be one who is lovingly engaged, lovingly engaged, 
without capitulating to your or others' fears and anxieties. In my estimation, that's a very tall order. Rare is the Peter that can lovingly engage without capitulating to my or others' fears and anxieties. Now, there's a couple of stories that follow this story of Jesus taking a nap. Uh, In verse 41, we have uh, this character uh, engaging Jesus, and Jesus says to him, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? I think this is a really powerful question. Here is this character who was probably blind from birth. And all his life, his only job that he can possibly get was to be a beggar. And I would imagine that the only thing he's ever asked for is food, money, or clothing. This is the first time in his life he's having this divine encounter, this moment. And Jesus is able to discern this moment. And he's able to stop the whole show, focus on this person, obey the voice and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of the crowd, in the midst of the momentum that was pushing him forward, he interrupts everything. He cuts through the moment and he's able to see this person who is a social, invisible nobody. And he's able to stop and ask the question, what do you want me to do for you? You realize that Jesus has been working and waiting for this moment. That Jesus is patient and he is engaged and he's loving and he's not capitulating to the momentum or to the pressures that are surrounding him. There are people getting visibly upset at him. Jesus is able to withstand all of that pressure and do what is truly loving right here and now. Do you think you would have been able to stop in that moment and ask somebody this question? I would have been swept away by the moment. I would have been lost in the moment. But here is Jesus. And then again in verse 5, there's this tax collector, Zacchaeus. It says, And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, What place? That place. What place is that? Well, that place, exactly where God was working, where the Holy Spirit was leading him. He is able to cut through the societal and cultural and religious clutter. And interrupt again the momentum, the flow of the moment. And engage the work of the Holy Spirit. And he sees Zacchaeus. This traitor to his people. This societal reject. And say, come down. I must stay at your house today. This moment is not for everybody. It's for you. For salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So here, we see a Jesus that's present and engaged in life. 
in the midst of the storm, in the midst of societal, cultural, and religious clutter, in the midst of shouting voices, in the midst of the intuitive, he's able to be counterintuitive. How does he do this? Because Jesus is present. He is a non-anxious presence. Second, Jesus is a servant. Well, what does it mean to be present? To be engaged, to, to be here. What does that mean? Uh, I think one of the best ways for me to think about this idea of presence is about what it means to be a waiter. Uh, today, uh, I ran into Christine this morning, and she had two very large trays of pastries. She was walking down the stairs, balancing two huge trays, and she just looked so balanced herself. And I was walking right next to her, and I just it didn't occur to me to ask her if she needed any help because I didn't want to tip her off balance. She was great. And that's what I was thinking about. What it means to be a servant, I mean, to be present is to be a servant. What is a servant? When you're in a restaurant and somebody is serving you at your table, if that servant is inattentive to you, won't greet you, won't pour you water, won't take your order, won't bring you your check, won't refill your water, won't clean up the spill, what is that? What if they're just standing there with their back turned and they're just texting and laughing and giggling, having a good old time with some friend on the other side of the internet? What do you think about that servant? That servant isn't present, right? They're not attentive to you. They're not engaged with your hopes, needs, wants, and dreams. And so I think a really helpful way for me to think about what it means to be present is to be a servant. That is, to say no to myself and to say yes to the other. So being present means to deny yourself for the benefit of serving the needs, hopes, wants, and dreams of those around you, those in the room with you. This is what being present, being engaged, looks like. Therefore, to be present feels like self-denial. When you are truly present, you are denying yourself. You are saying no to yourself and yes to other people. Therefore, the ultimate expression of presence is what? I think it's death. When you are truly engaged to somebody, you are dying to yourself. You're dying to your hopes, needs, wants, and dreams. And you're making yourself alive and attentive and responsive to the needs, hopes, wants, and dreams of the other. And Jesus expressed this, didn't he? Philippians 2 says this. This is my Easter passage. Where he denied himself, not just to the point of being a servant, but to the point of death, even death on a cross is what Philippians 2 says. That presence taken to its ultimate extreme, servanthood taken to its ultimate extreme is literal death. That you deny yourself so much that you actually die. You die and 
they live. And this is what it means to be present. And Jesus is present. Therefore, Jesus is a servant. And when you are a servant and you're engaged in the moment, you're engaged in other people around you, what it does is it unlocks opportunities as we see in these stories. There are opportunities all around us. There are Zacchaeuses all around us. There are people who, in whose lives the living God is working right now and we are missing it because we aren't present. We aren't denying ourselves. We are very much alive to ourselves and often we are alive to ourselves at the expense of being alive to other people. And what was Jesus able to do? He was able to engage in some great opportunities, not just opportunities. And what we see here in this text and in Philippians 2 is that presence, being a servant, being alive to others, even at the expense of yourself, leads to greatness. Because Jesus was able to deny himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, God highly exalted him. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all goes the song. And Jesus is great because he is a servant. And Jesus is great in my eyes because he is a servant to me. He engages in opportunities in my life and does great things in my life. Therefore, he is great to me. Third, Jesus is loving. Now here is where you have to kind of qualify what it means to be a present and what it means uh, to be a presence and to be a, a servant. Jesus is loving. But Jesus isn't a servant of those who benefit from his serving. Let me say that again. Jesus is not a servant of those who benefit from his serving. Jesus isn't a servant of the moment or of the urgent. Jesus is not a servant of the need or the presenting case before him. John chapter 10 verse 18 says this. No one takes it from me. This is Jesus talking about his own life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And what this means is that though Jesus is a servant, he is not my servant. Jesus is a servant, but he is not your servant. Though I benefit from his serving, I am not his master. Though you benefit from his serving, you are not Jesus' master. This is what Jesus says in verse, chapter 10, verse 18. I serve, I lay down my life, but this laying down of my life, 
and this taking up of my life, this is a command I have received from Peter? From you? No, but from his father. When Jesus is serving us, he's doing it at the command of his father. You understand what that means? It means that Jesus is committed absolutely to loving me, not appeasing me, not catering to me, not answering my every whim and wish. I can throw all the tantrums I want. Jesus doesn't care because he's committed to being loving in my life. And serving me means he's going to do what is actually loving. Not what sounds like love, what is loving. Not what smells like love or mimics love, but actually is love. Jesus will always love you, even if you don't like him, or even if you misunderstand him, even if you misjudge him, even if you reject him for years. He will never compromise what is ultimately good in your life and for your benefit. How do you like them apples? What are you going to do about it? He doesn't care. Because this command he has received, not from you, but from his father. Aren't you glad? Susie is gone. She is. We had our first day yesterday. And we not only survived, but we thrived. Just kidding, we survived. (laughs) Yesterday, we had waffles and fish sticks and ice cream for lunch, all in the same bowl at the same time. (laughs) It was pretty gross. But all the separate ingredients worked in my mind. It just didn't work together. My intentions are loving. (laughs) But the ultimate end result often falls short. This morning we had waffles and ice cream again for breakfast. (laughs) Minus the fish sticks. But never Jesus. Never ever Jesus. Jesus will never, ever serve me ice cream, waffles, and fish sticks in the same bowl at the same time. Because that's just gross. (laughs) No ice cream should smell of fish. I know now. Jesus, in other words, is always moving within a larger framework of love. He's never, ever anxiously reacting to you. He's never going to capitulate to any fears or anxieties in your life. He's not afraid of disciplining you. He's not afraid of saving your soul. He's not afraid of you being in pain. He doesn't care if you're kicking and screaming. He will love you even if it costs him his life. He will love you and love you to the very end, is what he says. And this command he has received from his father. And so he is always 
working and waiting, listening and watching for these moments so that he can lovingly, as a servant of his father, engage in your life. If you look at these verses, verse 22, go across, verse 35, approach Jericho, verse 43, followed, verse 1, enter Jericho, verse 4, pass that way, verse 10, seek. We see a Jesus that's always in motion. He's always moving. In fact, the scriptures tell us that his face was set like flint towards Jerusalem. He had a mission. He had a purpose. He knows exactly who he is and who he is not. He's not going to be thwarted by me or you or anybody else. Nobody could kill him until it was time. Until he, by his own authority and the command of the Father, decided, I will lay down my life. It is time. And then it is finished. And then it was time again to rise from the dead. And so he did. And then he cleansed us of our sins. And then he gave us his Holy Spirit so that it is better that he go away. And now he was with us, but now he is in us. And you think you could have stopped this plan? No way. No chance in hell, as it were. This is Jesus. Jesus always and only loves me. He never compromises love because that's the command of his father. And Jesus has no other authority but his father. And he will never capitulate, never cave, never, ever, ever compromise. Therefore, Jesus, fourth, is true. Jesus is true. Jesus knows exactly who he is and who he is not. His identity is secure. He is not insecure. He's not trying to be liked by you. He's not playing politics. He's not counting votes. His term is not ending. And so Jesus moves within not just a larger framework of love, but a larger framework of love and identity. He is always operating out of his true self. He doesn't have a false self that's been crusted over the image of God like you and I. He doesn't have a false or distracted or tired or stressed version of himself that sometimes rears its ugly head. You cut Jesus and he bleeds love, truth, humility. He is always trustworthy. He is always all-knowing, always loving, always fully engaged. And he sees you to the very bottom of who you are and the work he wants to accomplish in and through your life. And he will never, ever stop. The other uh, last week, you know, we have this thing where we pray for our girls every night. And, um, you know, uh, when I do the prayers, I usually say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his, you know, I do that whole uh, prayer. And then I add at the end a little something. But one day, Susie decided to one-up me. And uh, she held Sophia in her arms. And, uh, and she prayed this very sincere prayer, apparently, because after they said amen, Sophia said to her, Mom, that was a really good prayer. 
You know, she's six. I mean, what does she know about good prayer? But that's what she said. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Well, I can't let that record stand. And so, because I'm the, I'm the professional prayer, as, as it is. And so the very next night, I said, honey, I got this. And um, I tucked Sophia into her bed. Uh, and then I gave her a big hug, and I held her in my arms, laying down with her. And I said, Sophia, can I pray for you? She said, okay. And so I started praying, and um, I was, it was the most sincerest six, six-year-old level prayer I could have, a father could have possibly prayed. And uh, she didn't say anything afterwards. And so I had to go fishing. And so I said, so um, did you like that prayer? And she said, medium. (laughs) Put me in my place. And then I was kind of, um, kind of thinking about what I had prayed. And I realized last, that night that she spends all day with Susie. And so when Susie prays for her, there's a, there's a sort of a life coming through that prayer, isn't it? And when I'm praying, I'm sort of catching up. I'm like the dad who comes, shows up once in a while and buys gifts and then disappears. So those gifts just don't have the same emotional weight, do they? There's a, there's a faithfulness and a, and a um, genuineness in Susie's prayer that Sophia was able to pick up on. And also, I was trying to win. So there was a, there was a mercenary nature to my prayer. <laughs> but it reminded me that my love falls short. And then I started thinking about whose love can Sophia trust? Do I entrust her to another man? Will another man love her sufficiently and well enough? Is that good enough? Can Sophia get what she needs for her own soul from another man? What about from her kids? Can she get it from her kids? What about from uh, maybe the educational system? Maybe the government will take care of her and love her deeply to the bottom. And accept her just as she is. And show her this unconditional... Where can she get the love she needs if she can't get it from her dad? And I started listing things, and I realized there's no one and nothing that I can fully entrust Sophia to. Except Jesus alone. Where my control and influence ends. Jesus must step in. I felt this in a deep, deep way as a a parent. That he alone is present. He alone is the great servant. He alone is loving. And he alone is true. In a sea of anxious, self-centered, and changing, and fickle people, there stands Jesus. Alone and worthy of our worship. I have seven concluding comments. So far, I've gone 29 minutes, just so you know that I know. <clears throat> okay, first, presence feels like death, is therefore 
the greatest gift that we can give. Jesus said, greater has no love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So there's no greater gift than death. And death looks and feels like presence in our lives. Second, being a servant is the key to greatness, as we have said. That if you want to be great, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great, but don't waste your time. Do it in a way that's actually going to get you what you're after. Be a servant. There's a faith step here. Third, anxiety, emotionality, catering to whim and fear is not necessarily love. Did you hear that? Anxiety, emotionality, and catering to whim and fear is not necessarily love. Therefore, true love is willing to be misunderstood. I want you to ask yourself, are you willing to be misunderstood for the sake of loving someone? That means people around you, if you are loving, will misunderstand you. Because often what we experience as love is somebody that's being anxious with us or for us, somebody that's getting sucked into the vortex of our emotionality or is catering to our whims and fears. And if somebody refuses to do that because they want to be loving, we're going to misjudge them. We're going to misunderstand them. But at their heart, they would be loving. And we might miss it. Fourth, love ultimately benefits others. But it is a command of the Father. That is, you are a servant, not of people, but of God. Nobody owns you. God owns you. He bought you. You are his servant, not the servant of people. Fifth, there is such a thing as a false self and a true self. That often we are functioning and acting and living and thinking and feeling out of our false self, which is encrusted with anxiety and fear. And, and our grasping at how to control and fix life. And then once in a while, there is this true self, the self that's made in the image of God, the self that Jesus is working to redeem and recover. And that true self is so likable and so beautiful because it looks and feels like Jesus. We're going to have a sermon like that. It's going to be called Jesus the Likable. Six, life is mostly interruptions. When we look at the stories of Jesus, almost every single story that we read in the Gospels is him in motion towards Jerusalem so he can die. But while he's going there, he gets interrupted all the time. And this little point here has been really meaningful to me this week. As a pastor, you know, uh, that's been recently called to an uh, established church that's 
working to revitalize this church. I've had these goals, and I'm telling you, my mind works fast. And even before I came here in August and September, I had the first three years all mapped out. And it came to me almost in a flash. And I really feel there was some divine thing that was happening inside of me. I got to let go. And I got to engage the process. I got to be open to interruptions and adjustments. I have to engage the people that make up this church. And I can't just say, we're going. So I had to release a few things this week. And it was sort of a breakthrough moment for me. But life is mostly interruptions. Turns out church revitalization is mostly interruptions as well. Lastly, Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. I want to dare you on this point. If you can find someone or something else worthy of worship, go ahead. Do it. Trust it with all of your heart. Entrust the welfare of your kids to it. Do it. I promise you, you'll be back. You're going to come back to Jesus because no one else is worthy. He's not a glory hog. He's not ego-driven. He's not saying, worship me because I am just insecure and I need you to love me. He's saying, I am true. And I am the only one worthy of worship. Therefore, worship me. What else will you give glory to? I stand with Apostle Peter who said to Jesus, you're crazy. You're crazy. But you alone have the words of life. To whom, where where else shall we go? He is worthy. And so we worship him. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I have spent 36 minutes and 17 seconds talking about you this morning. And um, I just feel that does not do you justice. And my gifts and ability to communicate don't do you justice. You are so worthy. Jesus, you are the great non-anxious presence in our lives. Every single one of us here, we confess that we are anxious. We are fearful. All day long we capitulate. We're spinning. We're reacting. We are living life and doing life out of our false selves. We're just grasping here. So save us, Jesus. See us. Cause us to see. Call us down from the tree. Come eat with us. If you don't do it, nobody else can, so we look to you. If you are here in this room today and you do not know Jesus as the great non-anxious presence in your life and you have no Savior and you want Him as your Savior, you want to trust Him and you want to invite Him to work in your life and save you, I want to give you a chance to do that. Would you lift your hands up so I can see you? Jesus, we praise you for your work in our midst. 
Thank you that you call us to yourselves. And we come eagerly because you are worthy. We love you, Lord, because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.